came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views. Are you confused? Radio waves. Radio waves. Radio waves. She sees radio waves. She sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday the 25th of April 2019. Each fortnight we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. Today we are Skyping over to New Zealand to speak with Dr JJ Eldridge at the University of Auckland about stellar evolution and the lives of binary stars and their impact on the appearance of galaxies, supernova rates and gravitational wave events. And that's followed by Dr Ian Astroblog Musgrave, who is a University Toxicology and Pharmacology lecturer, an amateur astronomer and astrophotographer, and he's going to tell us, what's up, Doc? What's up in the night, morning and evening skies for the next two weeks? And he takes us on an astronomical tangent. And we'll finish up as usual with our Astrophys News highlights from this golden age of astronomy, space science and astrophysics. So right now we Skype over two time zones from Eastern Australia to New Zealand. Kia ora, JJ. Kia ora, Brendan. Today we are speaking with Dr. J.J. Eldridge, who is a senior lecturer in the Department of Physics at the University of Auckland. Their general research concerns the lives and deaths of stars, and particularly the effects of binary interactions on the lives of binary stars and how these change the appearance of galaxies, alter the rates of different types of supernova, and impact on gravitational wave events. Yeah, and it's just really interesting. I basically make lots of computer models and try and predict as much as we can from them. (laughs) (laughs) And a very exciting time for astrophysics. Yes, definitely, especially with black holes and neutron stars. I mean, the announcement about the image of the supermassive black hole is, I mean, we've known about black holes and worked about them, worked on them for so long, but this is the first time we've, been able to see the event horizon so it's kind of we're understanding things so much more in so much more detail now it's really amazing and kudos to dr katie bauman and that team of 200 from all over the world now before we talk about their amazing research into binary stars can you tell us where you grew up please jj and tell us how they became interested in science and space in the first place I don't really actually mention this in my talk sometimes. I ask the question of why do I do science? And the big answer is because of science fiction. Because when I grew up, there was Doctor Who on the telly. <laughs> and my father read lots of science fiction 
novels, and so it was almost quite natural that I did. So I've read a lot of Isaac Asimov, A. E. Van Vogt, uh, Larry Niven. But we also used to listen to the radio play of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams in the car when yep. he was on long journeys. So we always enjoyed that. And I grew up in the UK, in the southeast corner of London. And it's only just recently that I've moved to New Zealand to take up a lectureship position. But yeah, so science fiction is the big reason. And also because I really, especially, so I'd walk home from school and on the telly at five o'clock, there was always Star Trek Next Generation. Here I was, a young person studying physics, maths and chemistry at school. And then in Star Trek Next Generation, what was good about it is they actually talked about modern theories and turned them into a story. And you could always see the links between current understanding and development of science and what was going on in Star Trek Next Generation. And so that kind of really excited me. And especially along with Doctor Who, when you look at my job now as a lecturer, being an astrophysicist enables me to travel around the universe, study its wonderful detail and um, exciting just complexity. But then also because you get to lecture, you also get to take a group of young people around the universe with you and show you how wonderful it is, uh, show them how wonderful it is. So yeah, science fiction, it led me to my perfect career in some sense. So while we're here, please tell us a little bit about those school days and their early ambitions. And did those ambitions change? I always remember always being interested in space. But it wasn't until at school I talked to a careers advisor that I realised that there was such a thing as going to university because I was the first person in my family to go. So I think before that I always thought, oh, I'd go into computers or something. Because again, when I was at school in the mid-1990s, the internet and computers was getting quite big. And like, while I've always been interested in maths and physics, I've always liked computers. And so there's always been that tension or competition. Yep. And actually yeah. today where I'm now studying stars using computers, they've kind of merged together the conflicts have been resolved. But I was always good at maths and physics because I enjoyed working on them so much. So because I found them fun, I could work hard, and that's how I became good. I don't think anyone really has a natural ability in maths or physics. You've actually got to work on it. It's just if you enjoy it, it's easy to do that hard work. The only other time I nearly didn't become an astrophysicist was when I got to university, because I went to the University of Cambridge. And there you take three subjects and maths in the first year. And I was obviously going to take physics and chemistry because that's why I took at A-level and they're like almost like the core subjects of science. I mean, I liked biology, but I just couldn't get my head around it. So I took geology instead and I came very close to becoming a geologist because it's also very interesting how you build a planet and what the structure of the Earth is. Unfortunately, I then went on a field trip and when we was on the field trip, we got our exam results back. And I found they could only tell us because it was a geology field trip what our overall mark was and what our geology mark was. My geology mark was a 2-2 and my overall mark was a first. So my love affair with geology ended. And so I became an astrophysicist instead. Thanks, JJ. So after their successful school career, they completed their bachelor's and master's degrees in natural science, specialising in physics at Cambridge then stayed on there to do their PhD. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about and life as a doctoral student at Cambridge and how their thesis on progenitors of core collapse supernova came about? Just mentioned I was the first in my family to go to university and to go to Cambridge, which is in itself its own very strange type of university. 
was quite a cult, not really a culture shock, but it was a new experience. I, I don't know what advice I could give to anyone. And if I, I know if I was to go back, I'd probably treat it very differently. I did have to apply twice to get into Cambridge. When you first applied, I didn't have my A-level results, and I applied to Churchill College, and they didn't let me in. And then my headmaster said, you've got your results, take a year out, which I took, yep. and yep. Uh, try reapplying to um, his old college. Otherwise, I probably would have gone to UCL in London. But I got in the second time round, and I absolutely loved it, because there were people with the same interests as me, and actually broader interests. I mean, that's what I really like about Cambridge. You've got lots of really interested, keen people studying lots of different subjects, and you all talk. It's not like you're in your little silo and all the physicists talk to each other, because you're staying in a college where, you know, there might be three or four other physicists, but there's 100 students in total. You make friends with a very diverse bunch of people, and it's really exciting. So I ended up learning lots about philosophy and lots about biology and lots about economics and lots about law. So the social side is really good. I mean, it also meant I was able to study Taekwondo. And over my time in Cambridge, I was also able to get up to a black belt. and was never very sporty when um, I was at school. But at Cambridge, I was able to have that opportunity and ended up playing for the uh, university team in Taekwondo. When it came to doing my PhD, the same thing really happened, that I was on the reserve list to get the uh, place for a PhD at Cambridge. And fortunately, a few other people said no, so I was able to actually stay at Cambridge to do my PhD. And it's very different system. In some places, you might apply for a PhD in a specific topic. But at Cambridge, at the Institute of Astronomy at least, they just recruit people, and then you spend your first three months trying to find a supervisor. Yep. Um, so you're meant to go around and talk to people. You have some essays to write, so they actually make sure you're just not doing nothing. So I ended up talking to a number of people, and the person I chose was Christopher Tout. We just actually recently published our first textbook uh, together on the course that he taught me, which is on the structure and evolution of stars when I was an undergraduate. And yeah, from there, I just liked using computers. I liked stars. I liked his lecture course. So I started working on making models of stars. Um, the exciting thing was around the same time, Stephen Smart and Skylar Van Dyke, two astronomers in different countries, one's from America, one's from was in the UK. Stephen Smart was in the Institute of Astronomy, and they were doing an observational project, which is to study if you see a supernova go off in a nearby galaxy, you can check the Hubble Space Telescope archive of images before that star exploded, yep, and you yeah, can yeah. see if the star is still there or not. And so they had observations of a star that was dying, or just before it died. And so because I was making models of stars, Christopher suggested that I could model those stars over their evolution and see if I can get my stellar model to agree with the place where these stars were being observed. Beautiful. Or like, can yeah. I predict where stars... And it's very difficult to do because you've got to go over millions of years of the evolution of a star, so there's lots of very big uncertainties there. But we was able to do it, and so that's why my thesis is really about making computer models of dying stars. That's beautiful. Uh, yep. Okay, so after their doctorate in astrophysics, they had seven years of postdocs, including a sojourn over at Paris to work on long gamma-ray bursts at the Institut d'Astrophysique de Paris, Queen's University Belfast, and then back to Cambridge researching and lecturing in the structure and evolution of stars. An exciting time. Yeah, I mean, I look back now, and <laughs> it looks really exciting. 
it was all good experience. Um, it was very different going to the Institut d'Astrophysique de Paris uh, because whereas the Institute of Astronomy was a nice, big, friendly department, I knew everyone, in the Institut d'Astrophysique de Paris, it was much more insular and the groups were much more closed off. So maybe you didn't talk to as many people and yeah. the entire department wasn't in the same room at any one time. So I didn't, I was actually quite lonely there, despite it being a similar size to Cambridge. I don't know what it's like now. That's what it was like 15 years ago. So I don't want to give anyone the impression that it's still like that. From yep. who I know there is now, I think the atmosphere has changed somewhat. But then compared to being very lonely in Paris, I moved to Belfast where I absolutely loved it because it was a much smaller department. But everyone was much more social and interactive and would talk to each other. So it was much more fun. And that was also where Stephen Smart was, who I'd been working with on the Progenitor Project. And I really liked studying there because it's the first time I really started realizing that even though I have these computer models, when you make an observation with a telescope of another star, you don't get the same details out that you get from the stellar model. You have to either take the observations and try and infer something to compare them to your model. Or what I realized I had to do at the time was to take my models as close to the observations as possible. And that's really everything I do now is about making these computer models and comparing them to the observations because we know everything about the model. In the observation, you have things you don't know. And there's probably many things that we don't know we don't know. Yep. So it's that yeah. kind of gap that I really enjoyed doing in Belfast. And then, of course, I went back to go back to Cambridge because my partner was still in the UK and she had a number of postdocs in the UK as well, so we was able to live together. But yeah, it was kind of nice to go back to Cambridge and I could sort of become much more independent and push forward my work in binary evolution, but also get experience of lecturing the very same course, which is actually the one that got me into studying the work I do today. and. That's actually ended up with me writing this textbook of that course now with Christopher Trout. So it's interesting how these things kind of go in cycles. But yeah. And while we're talking about lecturing, now you've been a senior lecturer in physics at the University of Auckland for some time now. How are they finding the balance between their academic life and their role as a researcher? That's a really, really difficult question because it is a balancing act. and. One thing I've done at the University of Auckland is they have a um, postgraduate certificate in academic practice. And that is part of like how you be a good academic. And so part of it is what's the best pedagogy or how do you examine and think about the pedagogy of teaching? But also how do you balance that with your research? You know, and how do you be a good academic citizen? How do you improve the academic environment? And at the moment, I'm really trying to juggle all of those three. And back in Cambridge, it was relatively easy because I was only teaching one course. And so most of the rest of the time, I could do a lot of research. And you're right, now there's a lot less time for research. Teaching does take up a lot of time, although I've certainly become better at it. And uh, as long as I don't have to keep on teaching new courses where you have to keep on writing your own notes and think again, you can still kind of balance it. But teaching can be great because that's where you get your next research students. Um, so the biggest challenge, I think, for me personally has been to learn how to give projects to students and let them do the work rather than wanting to do it myself, because I really enjoy it. I want to have that fun. <laughs> but uh, it, of course, a student's always going to be slower because they have to learn. Yep. But it's interesting seeing how students progress and how they get faster and faster as they grow and they learn into their project. And I've been really lucky in Auckland to work with some really good PhD students and also undergraduate students and master's students. 
so yeah so there's always that balance and there's never enough time for research but of course the other thing i do is i do a lot of work what we would term service work to try and um, increase in, uh, equity and inclusion to get everyone feeling like they can be inside academia because there's always a stereotype that your professors should be old white men but trying to bring everyone into academia and know that every student should have equal opportunity to succeed when they come to university. I think that's really important because we don't know where the next ideas are coming from. And I can do that in my teaching by trying to make sure that I bring in as many diverse stories. Because I teach a big first year astronomy paper, the one really good thing I've really enjoyed recently is talking about more astronomy from different cultures. Because, okay, we talk a lot about Western and European culture all the way back to the Greeks. But all the other cultures around the world have had just as long records of astronomy. I mean, the Chinese astronomers still have supernova records from hundreds of years ago and thousands of years ago even. And this is kind of amazing. And it's like when you put those stories in, and I've had students really tell me that they enjoy these because I had one student come and tell me it's because he was named after one of the astronomers I mentioned. And that kind of made me feel like, yes, I was right to include that new story in astronomy. So, yeah, but juggling is difficult. About your research now, let's look a bit at that. You're a binary star researcher, and it's amazing stuff. Can you give our listeners a brief primer on binary stars and their sheer incredible numbers to start with, and the how and why new knowledge of binary stars impacts so strongly on other areas of astronomical research? Okay. Well, first of all, Most of the things we see in the universe are stars. If you look in the night sky, everything that is a bright point of light, apart from the planets, is a star. You look through telescopes at other galaxies, most of the light in the optical part of the spectrum coming from those other galaxies is stars. So we have to understand them. Now, our sun is a single star. The planets that orbit it won't change its evolution in any way because they're too small. A binary star is when you have another star orbiting it and their masses are similar, and so they can actually get in each other ways because stars grow over their age. So unlike the Earth and the Moon, who will stay the same radius and orbit around each other forever, stars can grow. And so you can imagine if the sun had another companion, that one day the sun would grow into a red giant and it would touch the other star. And that's when all the bad possible things that we don't really understand about binary evolution could happen. In terms of numbers... Massive stars above about 10 times the mass of the sun are always in a binary companion. And in fact, it's even worse than that because many of them are in triples. But it gets more complicated to try and describe triple evolution than just binaries. Normally, it is just a dominant binary that we see. For stars like our sun, the numbers are about 20 to 40% of the stars are in binaries. So actually, as you go down in mass, the number of stars in binaries decreases. It's something to do with the star formation process that, you know, we don't quite understand. But when we look at young star forming regions, that's what we see. So if you add this up over all the stars in the galaxy, about 75% of them have at least one companion. And the other 25% are roughly single. And as I said, it's interesting because they can get in each other's way. So our sun will always just lose mass. It won't ever gain mass. But if you have two stars in a binary, one becomes a red giant. That envelope on the surface can actually then get accreted onto the other star its companion, so the companion can become more massive. And so that actually means that that star also has fresh fuel, so it becomes brighter, more luminous at an older age than you might expect. So if you're looking at stellar population, it can be very confusing. And people have found these confusions. We find these things called blue straggler stars, 
because they look younger than all the other stars in the cluster. So these things have been known to be around, but there's kind of like a binary blindness by some astronomers where they're always thinking like every star must be singles and binaries must be rare, but we're starting to understand they're not. I mean, and these things are important. So the one example that I think is relevant to all of us is where does most of the iron in our blood come from? Hemoglobin, which is the molecule in our blood that makes it look red and carries the oxygen around, has iron atoms in it. Yep. And yeah. when you try and look where the iron comes from, it comes from explosions of binary stars. What happens is you have two stars in a binary orbiting around each other. One becomes a red giant. It loses its hydrogen envelope and becomes a white dwarf. Then the other star becomes a red giant and either puts material onto the other white dwarf and it explodes or becomes a white dwarf and then the two white dwarfs spiral in together. I have to mention both pathways because astronomers are divided. We don't know which channel is the dominant one. But you get them from a binary star because together you can make a white dwarf that goes over this Chandrasekhar mass and it explodes. And you convert about a solar mass of carbon and oxygen to about a solar mass of iron. And wow. so that's a vast, enormous amount of iron. And a majority of iron in the universe comes from these type of stars. So if we have binary stars, we would have different elements carrying oxygen around our bodies. Now, blood wouldn't be red. And we know from the recent gravitational wave mergers of the two neutron stars colliding there that must have been a binary star because there were two neutron stars that collided and that produced all the gold silver and platinum most of the gold silver and platinum in the universe and so again it's like there's these key elements that wouldn't exist in such abundance if it wasn't for binary stars if we're trying to work out why binary stars have been forgotten for a long time or only accepted by a few people it goes back to when people started looking at massive stars in detail. And people did go down the route of thinking that when stars rotate, they can have mixtures going on, they can change their surface abundance. And people saw these things and thought like, oh, rotation must solve all our problems. Turns out binaries are actually just more complicated to code. And the people who were doing this over time were almost, I don't know why they were ignored, because there's so many more uncertainties in binary evolution than there are in rotation. But now, we've decreased a lot of those uncertainties because we can study things so much more. So, yeah, I think that's probably a long enough answer. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you very much. Now, you mentioned earlier about predictions and modelling and making predictions and testing them is one of the great strengths of science. And I understand modelling is a very productive research tool to build our understanding of stellar evolution. Can you tell us a little bit about your work with BPAS or BPAS? What is BPAS and how do you test your predictions? Yeah, so BPAS stands for, it's a terrible name. In astronomy, you have some really great acronyms, <laughs> but it does exactly what it says. It's binary population and spectral synthesis. Yep. So it simulates a population of binary stars, but the spectral synthesis, it also predicts what they look like. So if I was to observe my models with a telescope, I would get exactly the same numbers out if I was to go and observe the same stars in reality that I was trying to model. So it's a code that I produced in association with my main collaborator, Associate Professor Elizabeth Stanway, who's at the University of Warwick. Yep. And there's several layers of it, I suppose, is the best way of describing it. And it came about because Elizabeth said to me, when we finished our PhD, we did our PhD at the same time, you know, you predicted stars about how they're dying, but you have to model them all through their lives to predict what they look like when they die. Why not look at living stars? 
but it, it kind of sounds quite obvious when you look at it, but it didn't occur to me until she asked about it, because she studies galaxies, and galaxies are mainly the light of living stars. So at the base level, we have the stellar evolution models, where we start a model on the main sequence made of hydrogen and helium, and then we evolve it all the way to the end of its lifetime, however that may be. Yep. Many people do that with single stars. We do it with binary stars. We do it with a detailed code, so we follow the entire structure of the entire evolution, which is very computer-intensive. So whereas other codes do it approximately, take a few seconds or a fraction of a second, our models take about five minutes to about an hour, depending on what that star does over its lifetime. And I have a quarter of a million of those models. And so when you do the numbers, it's like a few thousand years of computing time on a single computer. Fortunately, we have thousands of computers I can use in the Nessie Pan cluster from the University of Auckland to be able to calculate those. So I have my stellar models, but that's of like one star evolving over its lifetime. So then we do the population synthesis, which is where we take those models and we weigh them. So the ones that are more likely to occur in nature are more likely in the population and the ones that are less likely are less likely. And then we bring all that together and we make this model the entire stellar population would look like as it ages. And then on top of that, we put on spectral synthesis. So that's what the surface of the stars would look like, making a model of the atmosphere of a star. And so what it looks like, what a spectrum would look like, actually takes as long as it takes to calculate the evolution of the star over its entire lifetime. So we can't, so we have to attach those after evolving the star. We can't do it as the star evolves. But that means we can now observe this population in many different ways because we can predict as i said all the way at the beginning the supernova rates what those supernovae should look like when they explode we can predict what gravitational wave signals we should see how many we should see we can predict what galaxies look like if we took a spectrum of an entire galaxy or a star cluster we can understand the star formation history of that galaxy which is great because we have all these predictions and basically we can almost predict anything we want to from those models. And I often get emails saying, JJ, can you please give us these numbers, which I can work out how to calculate and then calculate them. Although we do make aware results public so people can download them. Everything from the individual stellar models and what they look like up to the populations. But the project we're really doing now, which has been funded by the New Zealand government through the Marsden Fund, is we can combine all this together. So the gravitational wave mergers that are going off now um, hopefully many of them will be double neutron star systems. So we will be able to find out the galaxies which they happen in. And one of the problems of gravitational wave astrophysics and the sources is when were the two neutron stars or the two black holes formed that we see merge today? And we can make models of that, but one of the only ways of understanding that is to look at how many stars there are in the galaxy that hosts those events and when those stars were most likely to have been formed. Doing this for one event tells us something, but if we do it for many, many events, then we actually get a better understanding of the population of these progenitors. And the real problem is the one gravitational wave event with an identified host galaxy, everyone who's looked at it has assumed, with the models of the spectral synthesis, that the stars are single. Yep. But the double neutron star is a binary star. So we're really going to do that. And for the first time, we're going to be combining the models to give the right spectrum and understand what the galaxy is doing and also predicting what the gravitational wave rate should be. Now, hopefully, if it all works out, we're fine. We understand physics. But what's going to be much more exciting is something's not going to quite match, which means there's something in my physics that's wrong. 
so I can go back and try and understand it. And it's not trying to fix one thing to fix one observation. We're trying to do everything at the same time. So it's really going to be nice and constraining on whatever physics we need to add or take out of the models. That is so exciting. Fantastic. Now, your most recent paper in the monthly notices, letters of the Royal Astronomical Society is the distance, supernova rate and supernova progenitors of NGC 6946. Could you tell us a little about supernova progenitors, how this research has helped reduce uncertainty in measuring vast distances in the case of something like the fireworks galaxy, please? Yeah. So supernova progenitors are the stars that explode in supernovae. They're the star that gives rise to the supernovae. And of course, most of the stars that we see would, we, we, once the supernova has gone off, that star would have died. So we can't go back and reobserve it, which is why, as I mentioned earlier, we use the archive images from a few years before. So the supernova progenitor field has been really, as I said, started by Stephen Smart and Skylar Van Dyke, because they realised both at the same time in different places that the Hubble Space Telescope archive was big enough that if a supernova went off within about 20 megaparsecs or 60 million light years, that we would be able to resolve it with the Hubble Space Telescope. And there are now something like 50 or 60 supernovae with progenitors identified, or at least constraints on the progenitor, because sometimes the galaxies are too far, the images aren't deep enough, and so you can't see the object, but you can know how bright it isn't if you don't see it. Yep. But with this, this was a brilliant paper because it's one of the most neat ideas that I've ever had with a student. So my student, Dr. Lin Xiao, had been working with me on a PhD and she was writing up and we were trying to match the supernova rate of all the galaxies within the nearest 11 megaparsecs of our galaxy and the amount of light that we could see in those galaxies, because there's another survey called 11 Hugs where they looked at all these galaxies, worked out how much light there was from young stars. And we wanted to make that same, right? Because if your models predict the right amount of living stars, they should also predict the right amount of dying stars. Those are quite firmly linked, because if you have more stars, you should have more dying stars. But when we went through, I said, oh, look, there's this one galaxy, NGC 6946, which has 10, at the time it was 10, now it's 11 dying stars over the last century recorded in that galaxy, which is why it's called the fireworks galaxy. And we couldn't make it fit. It was always too bright when we tried to work out what was going on. Oh, it was too faint. I can't remember now. But what we realized is if the distance was actually greater, because if you go onto one of the databases, uh, the NASA Extragalactic Database, you can actually see the list of distances that have been worked out and estimated for this galaxy. And they were very different, up to over a factor of two, because like some of the closest was that it was only five megaparsecs or 15 million years away, and the others were up to about 12 megaparsecs or 30 million light years away. So it's a factor of two or three in the distance. And that's amazing to have that much uncertainty. So we could make our models match, but only if the galaxy was much more distant. So it took us a bit of time after Lynn had finished her thesis to actually put this together, but we looked at the supernova rate. So now it's 11 because the other thing about NGC 6946, while it's had 10 supernovae, also it's the place where we found a red supergiant that didn't go supernova, but has since disappeared. And so it's very likely that that supernova didn't actually explode the star, it all fell back into a black hole because the star was too compact when it came to the end of its life. And so it didn't form a neutron star, but it formed a black hole at the centre. 
But with those 11 events, you can get a supernova rate, and so you can predict what the birth rate should be. And because we have the spectral synthesis part of BPAS, we can predict how bright the galaxy could be. And we can compare that to the observed luminosity, and we can do what we call the standard candle method, where you know how bright an object is and you can work out its distance from how faint it appears. Yep. So we got out a distance of somewhere between 7 to 8 megaparsecs. The error bars are very big because they're dominated by the supernova rate. Because even though we have 11 over 100 years, what we term is in terms of the Poisson errors, in terms of counting that number, the errors are somewhere between about plus or minus three or four. We might have been lucky getting more or less. So, you know, the supernova rate and the birth rate is quite uncertain. But we was able to get an error at a distance that fortunately matched other distances people had recently published using other methods much more accurately. But it's just this idea that counting supernovae in a galaxy alone can help you estimate the distance to the object. Because the one problem we have in astronomy is distances to objects. There are many ways of doing it, and it's something called the distance ladder. And so most distance estimates only work out to a certain distance. And then when you want to go beyond that, you need to go up to the next type of method. And it's how they're all constrained. But this is an important thing, because over the next 100 years, we're going to discover many more supernovae and many more galaxies. And while we can only do this at the moment for this one galaxy, over time, many more galaxies are going to have multiple supernovae known. So we're going to be able to do the same method of working out the distances. And it's just a really neat thing to think, like, this is such a cool one. And I couldn't believe nobody, I'm sure somebody else must have done this, and I just haven't been able to find it. But it's just such a neat idea, just because we've got so much better at observing and finding galaxies, uh, supernovae, that we can do it. The other fortunate thing that we were able to talk about in the paper was that because it's more distant, not only does that mean the galaxy is more luminous, but it also means all the individual stars, where we've seen the progenitor star in an image before the supernova exploded, they're all brighter as well. And there was a problem for two of these supernovae that they didn't quite agree with my models. So by pushing the galaxy out to a bigger distance, these two stars have got bigger, the one that produced a black hole and another one that caused, is an electron capture supernovae, which is a very funny type of supernova. We're not too sure if they actually exist. But it's much more likely that those two stars were a black hole forming supernova and this electron capture supernova. They match my models much more accurately with the bigger distance. So it's not firm evidence, but it's just, again, you're trying to fit the same picture or the same set of observations or the same physical understanding of model and just really made everything fit a lot more nicer and shows that we are maybe going in the right direction with our understanding of these things. That is sensational, JJ. I can feel the excitement in your voice when you're describing that research. Your students are very fortunate indeed. So now the mic's all yours and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in science or science denialism or science career paths or equity, diversity or our quest for new knowledge or even science outreach. The mic's all yours, Dr. Eldridge. Okay. I suppose there's two main rants. There's one here I just mentioned, but the other one, because you mentioned uh, equity and diversity and inclusion within astronomy, and I think all science is really important. The main reason I think it's important is we have so many challenges and so many problems we don't know what the answers are today. We're not going to find the answers to all our problems by people thinking the same way. And one of the problems, if you have a team of researchers that all look the same and all think the same, they're not going to come up with the new novel solutions. 
has been shown by research and also my own personal experience that if you get in a team that's diverse, come from multiple different backgrounds, have multiple different views on the world and everything, they learn so much more and you will blast through any problems by having that different viewpoints. And sometimes it's not one person just having a different viewpoint. It's having the different viewpoints that look at the same problem from different and try to understand each other's viewpoints that give you new understanding. One of the things I know that when I was teaching as a PhD student in Cambridge is I noticed that students needed to hear the same thing many different times before they understood it. You can't explain one piece of physics to someone or to everybody in the same way and they all get it. And I had to sometimes think of six or seven different ways of explaining the same physical process. And actually that gave me greater understanding because to try and help these people understand something that was maybe quite basic, I had to explain it in a way that they could understand it. And so you get this much deeper level. So that's also maybe leading to my other annoying thing, which is about um, science denial or people who deny science. Because I get very few people come up to me and say like, oh, I don't believe in binary stars. I think your supernovae are all wrong. Well, they typically say it's like, oh, that's fascinating. That's amazing. But then when a scientist talks about things like climate change or vaccinations, it's suddenly because it's something that impacts us and our world, everyone's an expert and they don't trust the scientists. I don't see why that is. And maybe it is because everyone has a different viewpoint. And maybe we have to explain to everyone in a different way to make them understand how things actually work and that climate change is real because we can see it and the evidence is there and vaccinations save lives and have saved lives. And we can see what happens if you don't have vaccination rates right now. People get diseases which, for those who are unhealthy or at risk, can kill them. So it's always just interesting just to have both those two features. And it's like how they both, both come together that we need to explain things in many different ways. And so hopefully everyone can understand them and we can solve all the big problems that we have in life. That sounds like a terrific approach. Thanks, JJ. Now, is there anything else before we go that we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eyes on? The thing I'm really keeping my eyes on is the third LIGO observing run. So that started on the 1st of April. I don't believe they were joking when they started it. but that's going to be really exciting with LIGO and with Virgo and they've really pushed down their sensitivity which means they've got a much more sensitive instrument and so they should be able to detect many more mergers of black holes and neutron stars and they actually had the first one the other day which was actually extremely distant it was nearly one and a half billion parsecs away which is nearly five billion light years away and that's enormously distant and to be able to detect ripple through space-time from that far away means we're going to be in for really exciting stuff because we're going to not just learn things about galaxies and the universe, we're going to learn things about black holes and also the neutron star, neutron star merger rate. We don't know how many we should see. We may have just been really lucky with the first one we detected, but if the rate is high, then we actually have to go back in and really change the physics of our binary evolution models because if we get a handful or a couple of handfuls, then that's a significant rate that we weren't expecting. So that's really exciting. And so we've got a year of these gravitational wave observatories being online. So that's going to be great to see what happens. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Dr. JJ Eldridge. On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. And we'll encourage all listeners to follow at astro underscore JJE on Twitter. 
You've got a fantastic conversation happening with a lot of people there. Thank you so much for your time, JJ. You're more than welcome, Brendan, and thank you for asking really interesting questions. It's really nice to get the opportunity just to be excited about my work and to share my excitement with other people. So thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Now we cross to Adelaide to speak with Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be talking with you again. And it's great to be talking with you again too, Brendan. How was your Easter break? Had a lovely Easter break. Ate too much chocolate and Easter buns. You know the drill. Yes, we did much the same thing. Very good. But it's always good to get the family together. It is always good to get the family together. We had a great time. Very good, Ian. Well, can you tell us what's up in the sky for the next two weeks? What's up in the sky in the next two weeks is pretty similar to what's been up in the sky for the last couple of weeks. In the evening sky, we have Mars still hovering above the northwestern horizon. Mars has uh, been moving slowly past the high 80s. It is now into the space where the horns of the bull are. And in fact, on May the 8th, Mars will pass between the two stars that mark the tips of the horns of the bull. At this time also, it's going to be quite close to the uh, hidden crescent moon. So that will make a rather good observation. You'll have to go out for nautical twilight that is hour after the sun has set while the sky is still a little bit light but sight of Mars hanging between the two bright stars tips of the horns of Taurus the bull with the thin crescent moon nearby will look very nice indeed but before that for those of you who happen to live in the Galapagos Islands or in southern Europe or northern South America there's going to be an occultation of the asteroid Vesta by the moon now, that will occur at uh, approximately uh, 2.00 universal time. So you're going to have to convert that into your local times. That could be quite interesting. Vesta is, of course, uh, relatively bright at the moment uh, and should be interesting as the moon it will be relatively thin. So you should see uh, some excellent disappearances and reappearances of the asteroid Vesta. Jupiter and Saturn are now in the evening sky, although you have to wait till quite late. So now we have three bright planets in the evening sky. And if you wait until morning, we've still got four bright planets in the morning sky. This will be the last fortnight to see Mercury. And if you look towards the east, you'll see bright Venus, still quite obvious, and uh, dimming Mercury below it. So for the next two weeks, Mercury and, uh, and Venus will be relatively easy to see. And on May the 3rd, the thin crescent moon will give you a signpost to Venus so you can uh, attempt to see Venus during the daytime. So for um, an hour before sunrise, fix uh, the location of Venus and the thin crescent moon together. And then as dawn brightens and the sun rises, making sure, of course, that you have uh, the sun blocked behind something large and obvious like a building where you can't accidentally see the sun locate the moon again and not far from the moon will be Venus it should be reasonably easy to see in the daylight still that's basically what's happening in the next fortnight an occultation 
of Vesta for those who are excited by occultations. Uh, Mars between the horns of the bull, Jupiter and uh, Saturn uh, in the evening sky and the morning sky simultaneously. Jupiter's now high enough in the evening sky that's worth heading out for with a telescope. Uh, Saturn is still best seen as a morning object. Uh, Venus and Mercury still visible together, but again, this is going to be the last two weeks where you can see them. Now, do you have a tangent for us for this episode? I most certainly do, and that tangent is screens of stars. What they've discovered recently using the Gear spacecraft is a stream of stars, something like 309 stars, streaming away from Omega Centauri. And what they think has happened is that Omega Centauri is actually the core of a galaxy. And this stream of stars is the remnants of the galaxy that are being stripped away from the core that is now Omega Centauri. The stream of stars is called the Fimbul Fool Stream. And it's one of the rivers in North mythology. It actually stretches over something like 18 degrees of the sky. The moon only covers half a degree of the sky, so that's something like 36 full moons across the sky. So it's a huge structure. But without the telescope, you're never going to see them as an amateur astronomer. For those of us in the Southern Hemisphere looking up at the sky, the Omega Centauri cluster is located at the apex between the Southern Cross and Alpha Centauri, if you make a triangle. And it's, it's easy to see as a fuzzy star out under dark sky conditions. And it looks uh, like a glowing a ball of uh, cotton wool in binoculars. And it's this amazing cluster of stars in a decent small telescope. So that's the first stream. And the second stream comes from our friends, the asteroid Gold. You may remember uh, me speaking on this uh, program a little while ago about Galt being a, a previously quiescent uh, asteroid which um, suddenly developed a tail yep. and then developed two tails. And they were um, looking at all sorts of possibilities, uh, why it had suddenly developed tails. One uh, theory was it had been in a collision, but the second tail uh, seems to uh, wipe out this uh, theory. And the other theory is that it's the orb effect differences in absorption of light and radiation of heat spins up relatively small asteroids and it can spin them up so fast that they start to come apart and we can see this with asteroid Benno uh, where the Osiris-Rex spacecraft is it's been been observed to be spitting out material from its equator because it's been spun up so fast by the Yorp effect and so what people were thinking was that the orb effect has been spinning up gold and it's now been now spitting out this material which forms these tails. Now, we've got some rather spectacular images from uh, the Hubble telescope from this tail. But someone went back and looked through a whole pile of archival images and found that uh, gold's been firing off tails since about 2013. And they plotted the observations of the tails in these archival images against its orbit. And what they discovered is that Galt is spitting out material at all stages of its orbit. So uh, for a comet, we know as a comet comes in and it starts heating up, 
it starts uh, developing a coma and then a tail as it comes closer to the sun and more and more of the ices heat up. And, of course, with, with comets, uh, ice um, means a variety of things from uh, frozen nitrogen to frozen carbon dioxide to actual water ice. So uh, you can start developing a coma and a tail before water ice begins to heat up. But with, with gold, it's uh, spitting out material both at perihelion and aphelion, that is when it's closest to the sun and when it's furthest from the sun. And by plotting the, the uh, orientation of the material and where it is in its orbit, they've come down heavily on the idea that it's uh, a yorp effect where it's the, the, the asteroids now spinning so fast is continually shedding, or it's not continually shedding material, but it's persistently shedding material so that it may not shed at all at one go, continuously, but it'll have a, uh, an outburst like we're seeing with Benno, with the material that comes off Benno. So with Benno, the material comes off and bursts, and they think well, this is what's happening with golf, so that uh, it's being spun up by the Yorp effect, and every so often uh, uh, loose material is being spun out into space, forming these tails. Fantastic. There's so much to see up there. There is, although to, in order to see the tails of golf, you have to have access to a, a fairly hefty telescope because it's obvious that this is going to be a very interesting object and is well worth following uh, over the coming years. Fantastic, Ian. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrove. No worries. It's been my pleasure. Good night, mate. We'll catch you later. Cheers. And as usual, we'll finish up with a couple of fantastic Astrophys News Highlights. First up, the LIGO observation run number three has already detected a new gravitational wave event. It's almost as if this occurred right on cue, as predicted by Dr Eldridge at the head of this show. We're still awaiting confirmation, of course, but it looks like if it's a neutron star-neutron star merger, then we've got a whole lot more gold and platinum in our universe. So what's happening now following the alert that's been put out by the LIGO and Virgo observatories is that optical observatories all over the world are pointing their instruments in the general direction of the gravitational wave event and looking for the optical counterparts. And next, NASA's InSight robot detects the first clear Mars quake, ushering in a new scientific discipline, Martian seismology. That's just brilliant. And to finish up with, there's news out yesterday about an international team of researchers led by Rolf Gustin of the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy in Bonn has now succeeded in clearly detecting the earliest building block of our universe, the elusive helium hydride ion, HEH+, in the direction of the planetary nebula, NGC 7027. The discoveries just keep on coming. Stay tuned. We'll see you in two weeks. Radio Wave!